If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. Artemis is a test program. And what that means is that we don't have all the policies, procedures written out. It's not just about trading for space, it's figuring out what you need to train for space. I think that it is the most exciting time to be an astronaut at NASA. And it's only going to get more exciting from here. As NASA prepares to return astronauts to the moon, U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Ann C. McLean is one of 18 astronauts selected to train for the Artemis moon missions. Ann's background includes numerous honors for her military service as an aviator, as well as the NASA Space Flight Medal. Most recently, she served as flight engineer for Expeditions 58 and 59 on the International Space Station, as well as the lead spacewalker on two spacewalks. In addition to her own current training, Anne is an instructor astronaut in three different subjects, robotics, extravehicular activity, and Capcom. The following podcast is not in any way, shape, or form affiliated with nor endorsed by NASA. I'm not employed by NASA nor otherwise connected with them. I just think this is very exciting stuff. Anne, how did you first get inspired to become not just an aerospace engineer, but an astronaut? So believe it or not, I told my mom when I was three years old that I was going to school to learn to be an astronaut when she dropped me off at daycare. And so it was a dream ever since I was little. And I think it was from watching space shuttle launches on TV and just being really excited about it. And a couple of years later, when I was in kindergarten, I wrote a little children's book about traveling to space. And it has just been a dream ever since then. What's fun is you've described yourself as an impractical dreamer, quote unquote, on NASA video. And you have something like 18 different honors, including your military service and your NASA service. What made the difference for you? So many kids say, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a rock star. What kept you going towards yesterday you are an astronaut? I think one of the most important things is that no adult ever told me I couldn't do it. You know, I and I hear stories from people who say I wanted to be, you know, X dream, but then I had a teacher that told me I needed to be practical or my parents told me to be practical. And so that's where I bring in this terminology of being an impractical dreamer. It's totally not practical to think you're going to grow up and be an astronaut. I mean, who does that? And so I knew that that was an impractical dream, but I was like, I'm just going to do a really practical path to make myself the type of person that would get selected to be an astronaut. And I'll throw my name in the hat. Somebody's got to get selected. And so, you know, I think it was really important that nobody told me no. The other thing that was really important is as I went down the path toward my dream and I did more and more you know, be it engineering and flying and and all these things that it took to actually become selected, I individually evaluated whether I loved each one of those things because I didn't want to get to where I wanted to be an astronaut so badly that I was miserable in my career to get there, or if I didn't get selected, that I had a career I didn't really want. And so I really chose to do a path that if I had never been selected as an astronaut, I would be doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. What do you love very most about what you're doing today? at NASA? You know, there's so many things I love about what we're doing right now. I think that it is the most exciting time to be an astronaut at NASA. It, we are in such an exciting time in space exploration. 
where we are just expanding so quickly in capabilities. There's more and more people having access to space. And here at NASA in particular, we're on the cusp of kicking off these Artemis missions. You know, we have already had Artemis when we've had the test flights, but we're having this whole campaign to go back to the moon and not in the style that we did in the 60s, in a completely different style where we're going to have, you know, a gateway space station in lunar orbit. And we're going to be able to take multiple missions of astronauts down to the ground, not just to plant a flag, but to do science, to learn how to do more deep space exploration, to have a sustained presence, to use fuel sources that we can find on the moon to actually power our systems. So I think that's totally incredible. We're flying on four different vehicles in our office right now. We've never at any time been able to do that. So we do so many different things at NASA every day. I think that's what's really exciting is there's there's so much test and development, and we're just always on the cusp of what humans are capable of. I saw that you were the lead spacewalker on the ISS. What in the world goes through your head when you step out there and you are spacewalking? It's so funny that you asked that question because that is the exact moment where it really hits you. It's the first time you go outside of the space station and you look down. And I distinctly remember looking down and being able to see the earth, you know, and it was like the biggest thing that my eyes have ever seen. You know, I've been to these national parks and you look across a canyon and you think that's so large. And then all of a sudden you're, you can't even process that you've got the entire earth in your view. But in between, in my view, in earth was my foot. You know, my foot was just floating at earth. And this is the same foot that I go get pedicures on that I see every day and that I put shoes on. And all of a sudden now that foot, I just kept thinking like foot, earth, foot, earth. And it was, it just this moment. And I thought to myself, first of all, what am I doing? This is the craziest thing I've ever done. (laughs) But also in a very quick moment, I went through the Rolodex of everything that I have done in my entire life. And I was so thankful to myself for never giving up and for just continuing to work toward it because at that moment just made everything worth it. What are the responsibilities when you're on the ISS, you're the flight engineer and the lead spacewalker, what's your average workday going to be like? So it's long days, definitely long days. So we work about 12 hours a day, Monday through Friday. And then we do actually get weekends off with the exception of cleaning. We have our house chores on the weekends, but you know, the mission, we have visiting vehicles that are like big cargo vehicles that bring up resupply. We have these spacewalks and all of these things. It's almost like we don't appreciate how cool it is until we look back on it because when we're in it, something that I've come to appreciate about jobs that look really risky, like space flight, aviation, mountain climbing, the people that do it are professional risk mitigators. And so it takes a lot of attention and it takes the whole team to identify and mitigate risks on a daily basis. And so our primary job is the safe operation of the space station. It is an asset that belongs to every human on earth. It belongs to you as much as it belongs to me. But I got the opportunity and the privilege and a huge responsibility to be the one to physically take care of it for about six months. And so we do a lot of maintenance. We do a lot of cleaning. We do a lot of care and stewardship of the space station, a lot of outreach to try to share this message. But the risk mitigation is probably the biggest professional responsibility. Fast forwarding to today, what are some of the risk mitigation things that you're doing as everybody prepares for Artemis II and ultimately Artemis III? So one of the biggest responsibilities that the astronaut corps has right now is that we pick up where the last moonwalkers left off. We do not want to go into a program and relearn any lessons 
that the astronauts and that NASA learned on the Apollo mission. So what risk mitigation looks like, has looked like over the last few years here, is looking at all of those lessons learned from Apollo. We've personally read every word of every debrief from those crews and from the teams and to identify what do we need to be training. And so I'll give you just one example. A few years back, we were looking at what are the astronaut skills required for this? Everybody thinks about the spaceship and the vehicle, but what do our astronauts need to learn? What do they need to be able to do with their own hands and eyes and ears to go land on the moon? And so we went back and we looked and we read those portions of the Apollo debriefs. And we realized we need to understand spatial disorientation better. We need to understand crew coordination better. We need to understand dust landings at vertical flight. And so we put together a training program in helicopters to address some of those lessons learned and some of those skill sets that we can train. So risk mitigation right now is making sure that we have really taken it to heart and institutionalized the lessons from previous flights. I'd love to look at some of your areas of specialty in teaching because you're doing a couple of things I've never heard of before in my life. Capcom, what is Capcom and how does that apply to Artemis? So Capcom is a capsule communicator. And so the name has been around as long as mission control has been around. So if you think about mission control in the 60s all the way through today, the flight director is the one that is overall in charge of the mission, the vehicle, and the people. And then every console position within mission control has a specialty area. When astronauts are flying, you have a CAPCOM, a capsule communicator that sits next to the flight director and is the one that talks to the crew. And more than a, a team member of mission control, what you can think of yourself as when you're doing CAPCOM is another member of the crew on board. So we sit in mission control and we're constantly asking ourselves, what does the crew know? What does the crew need to know? And then we talk to them, we talk them through their missions, we talk them through events of the day, we learn to run the emergency procedures. And so that is a Capcom's job is communicating with the crew. And it is generally very often another crew member, another astronaut that does it. And these days, because it is 24-7, 365, we also have engineers and other personnel that does the Capcom role. It's interesting to think how differently different people can hear the same word too. I would imagine that could be a challenge sometimes. Have you encountered that very much with astronauts? You are absolutely correct. So standardized communications is something that is so important, you know, and for example, we also have a little bit of calm delay and it's going through a radio. And so communication is two things. It's what you say and it's what the other person hears and making sure that you, we are constantly confirming that the message that was heard is the one that was communicated is part of the Capcom training. But there's also certain words because it's going through the radio that we've recognized sound very similar over the radio. For instance, on and off can sound very similar on a radio and can be one of the most critical calls that you make. So if you ever listen to space communications, oftentimes you will hear the Capcom say something like, we want you to take that switch to off OFF. That's why. I've always wondered about that one. What have been some of the coolest technologies about which you've been teaching for Artemis? So technologies for Artemis, I think it's amazing. If you've ever stood next to a rocket, any rocket that's been to space, one of the things that people always say is how large the rocket is and how it's almost unbelievable. You know, if you go look at a 30-story building, you know, that's the size of some of these rockets. And so Artemis, on top of the space launch system, is going to be the largest rocket that has ever flown. And so the technologies of what fascinates me is not any of the individual systems on that but the system itself, making that system work. 
when you have multiple systems that are built in different countries by different people, some of them on the metric system, some of them on the English system of measurement, all these different companies, and then it comes together and the system works. And if there's errors, it's in the system. And so how do you monitor and manage that system to me is what's most fascinating about Artemis, especially because Artemis is an international program. The United States is not going back to the moon by ourselves. We are going as an international community, which adds a layer of complexity to the already very difficult system. What has been so far your favorite story to tell about working to get ready for Artemis? What is, if you had grandchildren 40 years from today, what would you tell them about this? There's been so many interesting moments. You know, when we announced the Artemis II crew, we had the, all the astronaut corps was there in attendance. And I remember just thinking to myself, I can't even believe I'm in this room right now. So just getting to be part of a mission that size and having, you know, knowing that I have a very realistic chance of being on one of these crews, just getting to observe it and, and what it goes into it is something that I'll definitely talk about for a long time. What's interesting about the difference between training for space station and training for Artemis is that Artemis is a test program. And what that means is that we don't have all the policies, procedures written out. We don't have all the answers. It's not just about training for space. It's figuring out what you need to train for space. And so you see these subtle differences when you go do a suit test or you go do a evaluation of the cockpit design. It's actually getting to build the procedures that future crews are going to be using to train on. And you're, all of a sudden, your personal opinion and your insight and your experience is making a huge difference for a program that's going to be in place for ages. You know, One of my favorite things, I suppose, personally, was that I got to be on the evaluation and selection board for the new spacesuits. So I can forever look at the suits that are going to be on the moon and say, I got to vote on, on what suit we used. When you're choosing a spacesuit, what are you thinking about for the moon? It's such a complex, complex system. It's better to think about a spacesuit as a spacecraft more than something that you put on. It's a very complicated piece of clothing, but we think about everything from how does it fit? How can somebody operate in it? What type of environment is it going to be on? Are we accidentally designing in something that's going to be limiting to a future mission desire? We want it to all sizes to be able to fit this. We don't want to have to select all astronauts that are, you know, a certain height or a certain, you know, broad shoulders, you know, things like that. We want to be able to fit the first to 99th percentile, not just fit into the suit, but actually be able to perform the mission. We have to think about how it interacts with the environment. Moon dust is a very complicated environmental factor. It's like a very, very fine powdered sugar that's magnetic. And so it sticks to things and it grinds things. And it, if we're going to have a sustained presence on the moon, like how do we clean the suit? We also have to think about what insight the ground has into the suit versus what insight the astronaut has onto the suit. We have to think about, do we want nutrition, in-suit nutrition, and how much? How many hours are we going to expect an astronaut to work with and without nutrition in a suit? We think about how many years we want these suits to last. Our current suits that we are flying right now in fact, just last year, we for the first time, we had an astronaut do a spacewalk in a suit that was built before she was born. So these suits are going to be around for a long time. And so we have to think about the longevity and the changed missions. I never heard of in-suit nutrition before. How do you work that out? So right now in the spacesuits, we only have hydration. And 
part of that is not so much room or anything else, but those systems are complex and we don't want to put sticky Kool-Aid into our cooling system on the suits. That can be a problem. And so right now we have a drink bag that sort of looks like a camelback. You know, it's just a pouch of water that sits on our chest and there's a little straw. If you, next time you see a picture of an astronaut, look really close up to their face and you'll see a little straw sticking up there. They can take a little bit of drink of water. Now, if we're going to work on the lunar surface, when we're going to work on the lunar surface, it's very physically exhausting. And we want to have our astronauts work a little bit longer than we do right now. And so it's important to eat and drink. And so we are testing a variety of things. Do we put nutritional packets into something that's a liquid nutrition? Do we put a little energy bar that you can kind of lean over and, you know, maybe grab a little energy bar? Some suits for high-flying aircraft that use pressure suits, like the U-2, they use, they have these kind of like things that look like toothpaste packets that has a straw that you can put through, say the helmet and kind of eat out of that. We don't really like that because we don't want there to be any holes between us and outside. So those are some of the options. And that is one of the many things that are still under test and development. Finally, if people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you really like to take away from the work you're doing as an astronaut? Gosh, if I had to boil down one thing for people to take. You mentioned creativity, and I think that that is so important. And creativity is really only possible once you have the basics down, right? You have to be really proficient in order to be creative. And, you know, our whole society is defined at any one time, I think, by three things. When we look throughout history, we really just define a society over a period of time by arts, science, and exploration. And a society has to be functional already. It has to have the basics. It has to, there has to be social programs in place that our society is functional before creativity can cause people to create art and to create science and to want to explore. And so some people are going to think that space exploration is not for them or that they're not part of it. But the fact that our society is able to explore requires people that are at all walks of life in our society doing all sorts of things. We need people to tell the stories. We need people to dream. We need people to keep the basics correct. We need people manning our schools. We need we need to have a strong society in order for exploration to work. And so no matter what anybody's job is, they are part of this exploration because we wouldn't be able to explore if our society wasn't creative and capable in the first place. And thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. You and I have been listening to astronaut, aviator, and U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Ann C. McLean. Ann is one of 18 NASA astronauts currently training for the upcoming Artemis missions to the moon. You can follow the progress of the Artemis missions on nasa.gov forward slash specials forward slash Artemis. That's nasa.gov forward slash specials forward slash Artemis. The preceding podcast is not in any way, shape, or form affiliated with nor endorsed by NASA. I am not employed by nor otherwise connected with NASA. I just get goosebumps. As we see what used to be considered science fiction becoming our reality and our future. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. 
and click the button to subscribe. It's free. Our music is royalty-free production music from Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.